Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks. And this is Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. And welcome to Alien Day 2022. Woohoo! Can't wait for it to actually be Alien Day, because <laughs> we're recording this a little early. As always, to give me a chance to get these things ready for release on Alien Day. It's called preparation, guys and girls. So, yeah, we have no idea what's actually happening today. But as always, we wanted to do our little bit to contribute towards the festivities today. And that involves finding and bothering somebody of note in the Alien and Predator universe. So in the past, we've had the pleasure of speaking to the likes of Carrie Henn a.k.a. Newt, Ben Rigby, who played Ledward, the original victim, as far as timeline's concerned, in the prequels, in Alien Covenant. And we also had the opportunity to speak to Mark Verhaden a few years ago, you know, the OG Alien 3, 4, and 5 writer who kicked off the Aliens Expanded Universe. So for this year, we have gone for another Mark, actually, another Mark, and we went for... An author who is responsible for, quite unanimously, one of the favourite Alien comics because it's an interpretation that a lot of fans stuck to until Prometheus came out. And to this day, it is still an interpretation that people are like, you know what, I preferred Destroying Angels. So for this episode, we're talking to Mr. Mark Schultz. Most well-known for Destroying Angels, I think, among the fandom, but he has quite an illustrious career in alien writing and predator writing, having done quite a few series and shorts. This interview's pre-recorded. This intro's been recorded after the fact, and I have to say it was, having just finished my first pass on it, really fun and really yeah, enjoyable. we both had a lot of fun with this one. This was a fantastic interview, so we're excited to share it, and we hope you enjoy First of all, Mark, we'd just like to thank you for taking the time to come and talk to some nerds on the internet about Alien and Predator. Uh, Before we dive into your work on the franchises, for our listeners and viewers out there who might not know much about yourself, could you tell us a little more about Mark Schultz? Who are you and what do you do? My goodness. I've been a fan of comics and illustration ever since I was a kid and, and movies. And uh, I went to college for fine art, puttered around trying to be a fine artist for several years before finally deciding when I was turning 30 that I better get on with my life and decide what I wanted to do. And I kind of returned to my love of comics and I created a, a series called Xenozoic Tales that was published by Kitchen Sink Press in the States. And that led to an animated television show that came out of that comic called Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. And then I kind of trailed off It became more and more financially difficult to continue this series by the mid-90s. And at that point, I jumped into doing work, mostly writing, cover work, and some writing for other properties, including the Aliens franchise and Predator, Star Wars, DC Comics, one of the Superman books for almost five years. And since then, I've been working with a small publisher called Flesk out of California that has been publishing collections of my work, republishing Xenozoic, published a new book of mine called Storms at Sea, which was an illustrated novella. And that's a basic overview. Do you have any particular interests yourselves, like when you're not working? 
I'm interested in the sciences in general and specifically the biological sciences and paleontology. Uh, I've got a good friend who's a, a working paleontologist who I've been lucky enough to do some some visual extrapolations of what dinosaur fossils that he's worked with might look like. So basically, I'm serving as his wrist. He's feeding me what his expertise tells him this dinosaur might have looked like while it was living. And I try to execute that. Big fan of what I mentioned earlier. I'm a big fan of motion pictures. I'm a big fan of classic comics. And most of my, uh, unfortunately, when you're in the business, most of my time drawing goes to work now. I, I don't spend nearly as much time just having fun with my, my drawing as I used to. But that that's okay. This beats pumping gas for a living. So, yeah. So along with your writing history, you're you're also uh, quite an artist yourself, like you did the, the covers of Apocalypse Destroying Angels as well. Quite a few of your alien and predator ones as well, wasn't it? Yeah, they asked me to do the covers. Now, I'm, I don't do a lot of interior comic work anymore other than my own because I, I'm, I'm slow. I'm very slow. I can execute covers on a schedule, but not generally not the interior work. So I've been lucky enough, yeah, to uh, been uh, included in a number of series that needed cover work. But yeah, my, my love of drawing and storytelling, written storytelling, kind of collide in comics. I like the notion of storytelling in general, whether you're doing it visually or in text. Depending on the project, it's all interesting to me. So it was, it was a nice marry of your interests then and, and passions there. Absolutely. Took me a while to figure it out. Like I said, it took me till I was 30 to finally wake up and smell the coffee. But that was it. Comics are the nice juxtaposition. I was also interested in filmmaking, but filmmaking is very collaborative by necessity. And I like working by myself. So it made more sense to stick with a profession like cartooning. So to go on to the nerdy topics now, though, (laughs) we do have a number of a small number of traditions on the show, and this one in particular is we always love to hear about the first time our guests ever got to experience the franchises that we're going to be talking about, which in this case is all of them, because you went, you, you got to play with Alien and Predator. Mm-hmm. And AVP. And AVP, yes. So do you remember your first encounters with, you know, our favorite acid-blooded or trophy-hunting extraterrestrials? Absolutely. Alien was a very important film for me. And because of the uh, uh, the fan press and the uh, just the, the, the movie-related periodicals of the time, the late 70s, I was very aware that this was in process. There was a lot of good hype. I'm, I'm not sure what the game plan was with 20th Century Fox, but it seems to me in retrospect, there was a lot of information that was being put out in the press about how much of a game changer this would be. And with some examples of Giger's art and, and some of the concept work that was being done. So I was primed. I was ready to see this. And I, I saw it the first week of its release. My wife to be and I went and saw it, you know, just the way you should in a big theater in in an area that I wasn't that wasn't my home base. So I was even in kind of a I was neat because it was outside my comfort zone type of theater and with a full crowd. And it was it was about as perfect a movie going experience as you can act ask for. You know, it was one of those films that you don't think about when you're watching it because you're so engrossed. It's such a good piece of filmmaking. And the audience, the people around me were reacting the same way. You know, you could just see how affected everyone was by the excellence of the, of the filmmaking as well as the subject matter. It, the subject matter didn't matter as much as the execution. Now, of course, I love the subject matter because that's what I'm into. And then the realization came to me, which really, why it was effective for me, was it was the most 
one of the most Lovecraftian movies, that here was the odd cinematic experience that got beyond, you know, just just fear of having your throat cut or something, or fear of something jumping out in the dark to the the idea that this is a, a huge universe that really, you know, we're we're not at the top of the food chain in this universe. And the alien in that movie was he could he couldn't be defeated. It was something beyond our understanding or the ability of these people to cope with. And that that mystery behind all that, that feeling of something beyond our understanding was real important to me. That's an important element in, in science fiction and horror that I enjoy. And that was done so well. And you see it so seldom in films. That really made a big impact on me. So long story there, I know. But that's how important that film was to me. And one other thing that I didn't realize at the time, although it did have an impact on me, was the fact that Scott made the hero of the piece a woman, which had since probably the 1940s, Hollywood had gotten away from the idea that the person in the crew that was the most level-headed, that kept her crap together and was able to pull out at the end was, was female. And that was, for my storytelling and my work, that was pretty important to see that. And and that's something throughout all, I think, pretty much every single one of your Alien and Predator stories as well. Yeah, is that female lead. Absolutely. And it's interesting as well that you zoned, you zoned in on those Lovecraftian elements of Alien, because, again, that is, a, that is a huge part of why Destroying Angels is so well loved, because of how much it taps into the Lovecraftian stuff that not a lot of the other series has did. And I'm sure we'll talk about it later on, but, but that you went straight into that is, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And I had one advantage in that story, and I've, I've been trying to remember the whole process of making that. But if I remember correctly, that series, Apocalypse Destroying Angel, was the first time that Dark Horse had been given permission to use Alien, the concepts in Alien. Before that, it was all Aliens, the second film. And so they really hadn't, no one else had had the option of exploring the mythology behind the, the space jockey and where these people came from, and the, the questions that were left from the first film. So again, and that's what really stays with me about Alien, much more than, as much as I like Aliens, the Cameron film, for me, it does not have the weight. It's not the important classic piece that Alien is because of the the scope and the feeling of a Lovecraftian universe behind things. So yeah, that was uh, I was given that option to explore that, which I, I don't think had been done before. And you you explored it really well. Like I had mentioned in our podcast we did on Apocalypse, like even though the jockey made an appearance in that original Verheiden Alien series, like when I think of the Space Jockey Alien comic, I think of Apocalypse, the Destroying Angels, because that's the one I feel like explored it so well, but still maintained a lot of the mystery with the Space Jockey. But how about Predator? Do you remember your first time in terms of, of Predator seeing that film? You know what? I missed that when it was in the theater. I didn't see it till it premiered on TV. And yeah, and it was one of those. It's a great film. It's another one of those films that, you know, they took a lot of tropes, but they did it in such a way to make it really engaging. And John McTiernan, I mean, he's a great he's a great action director. It's my favorite Schwarzenegger movie. It didn't have the impact on me that Alien did, but it's a really good movie. Yeah. And I think it does have a bit more depth in it than people tend to give it credit for as well, with the way it sort of takes the piss out of things like the A-Team and that whole setup and, and the futility of the weapons and stuff like that. Yeah, there's, there's a lot more depth to Predator than I think people yeah. give it credit for. And the whole genre switch was just something that was so uncommon, something that started out as like a military testosterone-fueled action movie that quickly pivots into like sci-fi horror. 
Yeah. And that was very smart that he sets up these guys as super macho. And again, because of expectations from previous films to then have them rather easily disassembled through the uh, course of the movie was good filmmaking, working against expectations. An ongoing debate on our forum is preference over H.R. Giger's original alien design and whether or not you prefer it with the skull visible or not. And we're especially curious to hear the opinions of the creatives who work on the series. So what's your take on the subject? Do you prefer being able to see the, the skull and those empty eyes under the alien dome or do you do you just prefer? Kind of an odd question, I know, but Aaron and I are, are always asking this one. This is one of those little traditions that we always have, and it became such a running gag on the forums about being anti or pro skull or whatever that it became a default question for whenever we spoke to anybody with creative talent involved in the um, in in the Alien series. I gotta say, I never even considered that before I saw your question. You know, to me, it matters not either way. It's the way it's handled. It's the way it's lit. It's the way it's introduced. It's the way it's used. I don't have any particular preference. The only point where I was not happy with Alien, the way aliens were presented, it was in, I believe, it was the fourth movie when so much of it was obviously CGI, and they lost their weight. It wasn't good enough CGI for me to say, I, I believe, I can invest and believe these creatures are a threat. It just didn't work for me. So other than that, though, I, I've never really, I enjoy the different takes on Alien. Now this, this is one that we had a lot of variations on of people wanting us to talk to you about. It's, it's a question everybody was really curious as to your response. So in, you know, in 2010, Sir Ridley returned to the Alien franchise with a new prequel series that began with Prometheus and then five years later continued with Covenant and it returned to the space jockeys. Now, for many fans, you know, there, there was, you know, what, another, de there was a decade between the two, mm -hmm. between Prometheus and, and Destroying Angels. And, and for many fans, Destroying Angels was the, the interpretation of the relationship between the aliens and the space jockeys. And the prequels went in a completely opposite direction, uh, moved away from, you know, that particular Lovecraftian way you took that story, while also still aping quite a few of the elements you introduced. So everybody wants to know what you thought of those prequels films. Well, first of all, I, I never saw Covenant, so I can't comment on that. But yeah, I mean, there certainly are similarities between Prometheus and Destroying Angels. What or if there's pure coincidence or if someone was reading it, you know, you work on these properties and they're, they're someone else's toy. They get to give you notes on what they want to see and what they don't. They didn't give me any notes on Destroying Angels. So I assume there was nothing in there that distressed them at the time, but they own the rights to anything I would have created in there or any concepts. That's just part of the, the work for hire agreement when you do something like that. As far as them acknowledging that there was any connection, you know, in Hollywood, that's never going to happen. And it could all be coincidence. There's no way of really knowing. It seems like there was quite a number of coincidences, but that's, that's their business and that's their right to handle it however they want to. What did you think of the film, the film from an entertainment perspective, you know, as you sitting there watching it? Did you like the Prometheus? 
It's not a very good movie. I, I think it's, it's kind of a hot mess. And let me preface by saying I have absolute respect for Ridley Scott. He's done a number of movies that are at the top of my favorite movies of the last, since the 70s. He's one contemporary director who knows how to use, I'm not, I'm a much more of a fan of black and white movies than I am of color movies in general, mostly because most directors or even most cinematographers, I don't get the feeling they really know how to use color. But Scott uses color in a very painterly way. So his films are, even if they're not great, they're beautiful to look at. But I thought this film just seemed to introduce too many themes in it that weren't resolved or went nowhere. And there was too much trying to satisfy what had been done before in Alien. And it was just a mess. And again, yeah, not every film works out. And, you know, a couple of years after that, he does Martian, which I, The Martian, which I think is absolutely brilliant. Pretty close to a flawless movie. No disagreement there. We both really like The Martian. I think we were also both pretty disappointed in Covenant. I think A Hot Mess is a good good description for it. And and you're right, Scott Scott makes really beautiful looking movies that are very technically impressive from a filmmaking standpoint mm-hmm. and a world building standpoint and production design. But the story was just all over the place in that movie. Right. Well, Prometheus just, again, uh, you know, they introduce this team of science, but there's there's hardly any recognizable mythology to the science. I mean, and I don't expect a lot in a movie, but it was uh, just, yeah. And I got the feeling, though, again, because he introduced a lot of themes that Scott likes, like the relationship between fathers and progeny and, and where do we come from and all these things. All these various characters are kind of related to that. But I felt that this would have been served better in maybe a, a, a miniseries, maybe a six-part television series for a, you know, a streaming service or something to be able to develop those themes. It was like trying to jam too much into one you know, two-hour, two-hour and 20-minute movie, whatever it was. Scott likes to have these grand ideas and grand concepts to explore, but he's he's still very much also a businessman who has to keep his cuts down to two hours to please the studios. To yeah, is is in a weird is in a weird position, I think, in in that regards. That allows him to continue to make these incredibly expensive movies, and sometimes. Like, again, The Martian, man, it works to perfection. You know, he's got one problem to solve, one cent, great two-hour movie. Martian is uh, what got me really excited for his sequel to Prometheus, Alien Covenant, because I was like, oh, he's he's got it back now. Now it's going to be good. And I think Aaron and I are a bit more split on Alien Covenant. I think I was more disappointed than he was. But I still recommend it. I mean, there's there's some interesting coincidences in that one, too, with mm-hmm. with Apocalypse. So it's at least worth a watch. I would say. You know, one thing that I really did like, I liked the end of uh, Prometheus where, oh, uh, what's her name? Numi repeats. Yeah, goes off theoretically to find the homeworld of the engineers. And I uh-huh. thought, wow, here we go. Let's see, you know, and then, and again, I didn't see Covenant, but what I understand is that really doesn't go anyplace. Yeah, not, not really resolved in Covenant. <laughs> we, we all wanted your necropolis. We, we got ancient Rome, so... Oh, really? Yeah. Still some interesting aspects about it, but yeah, the, the Necropolis idea, the lone scientist at the Necropolis very much reminded me of Apocalypse. Interesting. Well, I, I assume I'll, at some point, I'll pull that up and watch it. it it's got its flaws. It's got its flaws, but I, I still really enjoy it. Do you have any idea if Scott is going to do a, a, a trilogy? Is he going to have a third? Th- that was the plan, but I don't think Covenant did as well as, as they were hoping. 
Okay. I know he's executive producing both the TV series and there was a new movie that was just announced by, uh, I guess, Fede Alvarez is doing it. But that's going to be Fede Alvarez's take that's not really connected to any of the other films. But I mean, the prequels have their fans like there's a, a good portion of the fans that do really like the prequels. And and I do feel bad because the second movie, just like Prometheus, ends on a cliffhanger. And there's there's just like Prometheus, there's unresolved threads there that wouldn't be great if they were forever unresolved or maybe it would be. And I know you want them to remain unresolved. <laughs> yes. That's almost a danger when one of these genre films becomes popular enough to become a franchise. There's the incentive for the studio is to keep stringing it out as long as possible to make money. You don't want to resolve things totally. And it's always diminishing results, yeah. in my opinion. Not, not always, probably, but it's hard. It's hard to make something that has the impact and the quality as, as it goes along. It, the returns are less and less. The, yeah. the creative returns are less and less. Well, even in your story, you, you do it well. Like you resolve the story, but you also kind of allude to events that could happen and where the characters are going. So it feels like a contained story that's mostly resolved, but you also leave room for the next story in Apocalypse. Which there was never any discussion about continuing with those characters or with the concepts. And I don't know if that just had to do with the series didn't do well enough for Dark Horse to want to continue with it, or if there was ever any. I, I'm not quite sure why the Apocalypse name was stuck on this. I I wanted to just call it Aliens Destroying Angels. And somewhere along the line, Dark Horse decided Alien Apocalypse was going to be the overriding title. But it never went any place after that. That's that's interesting because the way Mike uh, Hansen, you know, your editor on Destroying Angels, spoke in, you know, the... Mike Hansen wasn't... Phil Amara was my editor. Let me see if Mike Hansen was... Uh, I don't see him in any of the credits okay, here. May maybe he was... Chris Warner was the series editor. Now, now you've got me questioning here. Because I'm sure it was it was in the back of the um, it was in the the letter sections, basically. Well, he might have been unsupervised. I had contact with him. Okay. Well, it was just some of the, the some of the things he said in the letter sections. You know, made it very much sound like it was going to be the first in a series. Might have been. But to, to be fair, though, the next comic, pretty not yours, the next series after, pretty much killed <laughs> uh, Alien and and versus and Predator for nearly a decade. No, that was Xenogenesis. Yeah. Okay. Again, I'm not familiar with much of the work that was done beyond what I yeah. contributed to, so I have no opinion. Let's talk a little about how you came to work with Dark Horse on Alien and Predator. I believe your first story for them was Predator Hell and Hot Water. So how did you come to be involved with that series? I got a call from the editor, Bob Cooper, uh, and I, I have no remembrance of what the uh, connection was. If he talked to someone that I we had in common that recommended me or suggested that I was looking for work, but it came at a good time when I was looking for work. But it was kind of out of the blue, as I remember. I, I don't specifically remember any anything other than, would you be interested in writing a, a Predator series? You also did a, a Dark Horse Presents around that same time, something different, something original, didn't you? Was that before or after? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't remember. It might have been before, might have been about the same time. 
You know what? That might have been the connection. I did write a story for Al Williamson, who is one of one of the the old masters of comics, who was still working at the time, and he was a good friend of mine. And I wrote him a short story that appeared in Dark Horse Presents. That could have been the connection that led to Predator. I'm not sure, but that might have been it. So was that was that your pitch then? Uh, did they come to you and say, "Have you got any stories you want to do?" Or did they come to you with the concept and will you do this for Helen Hot Water? No, it was my pitch. I had learned to scuba dive recently, and I really was interested in incorporating that into a story. And I wanted, if I remember correctly, I wanted to do something in an environment that Predator hadn't been put in up to that point, you know, just to say, you know, these guys are the ultimate hunters and they're interested in all sorts of different challenges. That kind of leads into our next question, that the majority of your work in the Alien Predator franchises are unique, often for both narrative and artistic reasons. And your very first piece that we're talking about, Hell in Hot Water, is no different. It's the only Predator story we can think of that is set underwater. What challenges did the setting present when developing the story, if any? Boy, again, specific specifically, I don't remember that there was any big problems Again, I was eager to use what I had learned about scuba diving. And of course, the technology I was giving the team that went underwater in this story was far in advance of what I used as a you know, run-of-the-mill diver. I had them using rebreathers and, and military-grade equipment. So that was just fun research to do. My other interest at the time, and still an interest, is in uh, what do they call extre- extremophile life forms, yeah. forms microscopic, mostly forms that live in either sunless environments where they're living on chemical energy or just living in environments that we would consider uninhabitable. That became the creatures in in, in the story that the predator was hunting along with, with man. You call them the tardigrades, I think, right? Yeah, well, tardigrades are a, a, a microscopic creature, water bears. If you saw the uh, the Ant-Man movies, when they go down to the quantum zone, they're going past these creatures that are menacing the uh, the little ship they're shrinking in. And those are those are tardigrades. Mm-hmm. They're actual creatures. It's yeah. the one thing is just to make them giant, you know, and then they become menacing. They are mostly found underwater, aren't they? You know, volcanic places and stuff like that. Is that yeah, right? Well, not tardigrades specifically, but that was what I was getting at. That these are creatures that were adapted to this incredibly harsh environment. And, and tardigrades, actually, they're amazing. They can stay in a state of suspended animation, essentially, for, for, I believe, centuries before, you know, you reconstitute them with a little water. So, yeah, they're, they're tough little critters. And make perfect prey. Yeah, perfect prey and perfect predators, too, if you're smaller than them. So one of the things that I've always personally felt that the expanded universe never really capitalized on was something introduced in Predator 2, and that's this other world life form organization. There's comics such as Bad Blood or your own Helen Hot Water that would use non-named government organizations instead. And I always felt like that was a missed opportunity to have this sort of overarching mythology around, you know, the OWLF. So I was I was curious as to if there was ever any consideration into including OWLF in the comic and expand on that mythology, or was that just a, you know, roll roll with what I'm doing kind of thing? Yeah, I'm afraid it's more the latter. It makes perfect sense what you're saying. I agree. And I'm not quite sure why there wasn't an editorial voice there or notes that would suggest maybe we want to exploit this concept we already began in the movie, in the second movie. That's a good question. I don't have an answer for that, but it it makes perfect sense. I don't know why. 
The second movie wasn't, again, I didn't think was a very good movie, but, and I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember if I would have seen that. I'm sure I had seen it before I wrote the series. But I guess it didn't stick out in your mind then, that particular No, album. apparently not. Apparently not. And, and that would have been the type of thing. It makes, again, it makes perfect sense. I'm just wondering now, why didn't I talk with my editor and say, hey, is this something we should go with, give a name to these people, instead of just keeping them a shadowy, nebulous organization? Well, I suppose it's like you were saying as well. I can't remember if it was off the air or, or when we started recording, but the notations from Fox and stuff, I guess if they weren't picking it up, you know, in your submissions either, then yeah, just not being no. picked up. I, and again, very hands off. At the time, I, I don't think they saw the potential in like Predator as a, becoming a franchise type of deal where they were concerned with making sure, you know, they, they could maximize the potential by keeping everything in, in line. I have no idea even if anyone at Fox actually read the synopses, the proposals. There's never any suggestions or, or negative comments. It kind of makes me glad that particular element's now being picked up and, and that a little bit more care is, is going off there. But yeah, okay, fair enough. Yeah. So after Hell and Hot Water, you went on to do Aliens Havoc. I think that was a two-issue run. Havoc is especially interesting. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> and, I, and I don't say that as like some diplomatic cover of anything. <laughs> I think it is a genuinely interesting story in the way that the perspective shifts. Nearly every page to start with, and then near enough multiple panels within the same page later. And while I imagine it was especially challenging on the editorial side of things, how was that like to work on? I mean, did that visual consideration even cause a blip on your radar, you know, as, as you were writing it? What what was that comic like? And, and where the hell did that concept come from? It was given to me. That was one time I was given a an editorial concept that I had to work within that structure. They wanted a story where the the gimmick was every page would be done by a different artist. And that was what I was given. And that was fine. I could have just written a story, any type of story, and okay, every page will be done by a different artist. But I, I decided for, for better or worse to let's integrate that different look on every page into the story. But by having the uh, the perspective change between every page was a different character, and therefore the look would change based on who the character was. And, and the difficult thing was it all had to be told to make that work. The perspective had to be the perspective of the individual on that page. So it was always what the reader was seeing in the panels was what that character was seeing. And the problem with that was some of the artists, most of the artists got the concept, or at least they honored the concept and they stayed with that. They presented their, their work, their drawings, panel by panel drawing, echoed the, the viewpoint of the perspective, the point of view of the per of the person in that page. Some, however, didn't. Whether they didn't get it or just didn't care, they drew whatever they wanted. Didn't John Gerard do a um, a panel that is just entirely incomprehensible? I have no idea what's going off in, in that singular panel. I honestly don't remember everyone that was involved with that project because what was it? It was 40 different artists, maybe? I don't know, a lot. Adam Shedd. We were talking earlier, and he, and he shared the credits page on, on the digital version of it, and he was like, damn, there's so many yeah. artists on this. It was, yeah, it was insane. You know, it was a high-concept piece, and it was like a tightrope act, and we didn't make it across the tightrope, I feel. It was a worthy concept, but it was probably asking too much to wrangle all those artists 
into following that concept all the way through. There's a lot of great art in there, and it's fun because it's different. But I'm I'm not I haven't looked at that honestly in probably two decades, so it's hard for me to even comment on if it worked or not at all, or if it was just a again a hot mess that didn't come together. I always enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah I quite enjoyed it. I I think it was the first time I had ever read it actually uh, in prep for this podcast, and it was just so cool seeing a different artist take from each page. Now it kind of works you into that, like you start with a single art style at first and then it's page after page after page is is a different artist in a different art style you know in some of the other comics i always think it's interesting seeing callbacks to previous scenes but done in a different art style but with this one we get to see that every page we're seeing the same environments the same characters the same events happening but totally different art style and and i thought it made for it made for a really unique and compelling honestly comic reading experience it also has one of my favorite settings in comics which is like the space luxury liner <laughs> so i think that's just such a cool location for an alien outbreak and i don't think we'd see that again until a more recent avp comic which was called thicker than blood yeah which also was on a space luxury cruiser so the location i thought was also really cool yeah i'm trying to remember why i chose that other than it gets a lot of opportunities i think i might have been thinking poseidon adventure with all the interesting interiors different set pieces you could use for particular scenes like the engine room and your giant Mm -hmm. observation dome and stuff like that yeah right right I would have I would have reacquainted myself with that, but I can't find where my copies are. So I haven't looked at it in a long time. But it was it was a fun experiment. It was a fun experiment, and I I can't imagine how difficult it was for the editor to deal with trying to wrangle all those artists and putting work in. <laughs> we normally have a question about this, but I seem to have missed it in yours. And we generally always ask about how familiar you were with previous stories leading up to what you were working in. And if I remember rightly, with this one, you know, you did go into previous elements because I think it was framed around the royal jelly. Is that right, Adam? Yeah, they mentioned Zeno Zip in it. So well, I'll ask you now, since I've completely missed it, but, you know, um, before you did, or I guess while you were working on the comics as well, had you, had you really dipped into the other series? Were you conscious of calling back no, to previous much. runs? They might have fed me some previous work that they wanted to incorporate into Havoc. Uh, and I would have read that. But, you know, other than that initial series that Mark Vander Heiden wrote, I really hadn't kept up with what was being produced by Dark Horse. So, no, okay. I, I didn't have a lot of backstory there. But they very well may have sent me previous stories that they wanted me to jump off of or incorporate in some manner. I'm not sure. In Havoc is also where you introduce the name, and I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly, <laughs> Linguifota acaronsis, yeah. a binomial name for the aliens that, well, you would only use in the expanded universe, would get used a lot on message boards and mail groups. Could you tell us about your decision to coin a binomial name for the aliens instead of sticking with a conventional xenomorph? Well, I, I just figured, again, my interest in science and biology, I just figured that this was a life form that scientists would have, if any scientists who were aware of it, whoever was describing the creature first, the scientist who had the honor of describing the xenomorph would have given it a scientific name or a um, the Latin version, which is the accepted version in all languages. So if you're a Chinese scientist, you know what the English scientist is talking about when they say lingua foda acarensis. It's the same across language barriers. That's that's just standard. That was 
Linnaeus, I think he was Swedish back in the 17 or 1600s, came up with that system, and that's that's what science still uses. So I, I just figured that I asked the editor, and I'm trying to remember who the editor was. I'm embarrassed to say I can't remember. But I asked if there had been a scientific name, a, a Latinized science accepted name for the creature, and there hadn't been. So I said, well, is it okay? Do you mind if I come up with one? And they said, no, go ahead. And again, it was submitted to Fox, and they apparently didn't have a problem with it. So to me, it just needed it just needed that. Now, it's not something that, right, your average person is going to be calling the creature, but I don't know. I just like that little detail. I like that little bit of uh, uh, rounding out the, the uh, our understanding of it. You are one of only two people to do that. Yeah, the next one was Internectivus Raptus, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, and what was that done for? The DVD. The the producer of the DVD, a absolutely wonderful gem of a man that does not get enough love, Charles de Lozarica. He snuck it in the menus oh. of the, the the DVD box set. The DVD of, of Alien, the the first movie, or well, the the series. Oh, the series. Yeah, the collection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that that one, you used yours pretty much exclusively. Nobody else did. And the Internecivus thing has only been used a couple of... Sideshow. Sideshow, yeah. It, it's been used pretty okay. much on just some statues. All right. You were rather unique there. And it, and it was it was always one I always enjoyed. I did a little article um, a good few years ago on the various names that the aliens went by. And I enjoyed diving through stuff to, uh, to, to look at those. It was a good idea because Xenomorph in the second film, you know, this is a very overly broad term just used by the military in that movie. And you would think that right. scientists, yeah, would want to be more specific about it. They would be more specific. and But at the same time, I mean, the actual contact with the creatures, to be able to study their actual physical presence, I don't know. You know, I don't know. Does that ever, is that ever encountered? Well, it was in the fourth movie. Yeah, they had actual scientists did so I, I get i get the time frame of these things the the chronology all screwed up so i have no idea where havoc would have fallen within the, the chronology of the films <laughs> i think you were after resurrection i think everything you did was after resurrection resurrection was 97 98 and I'm, right. I'm fairly i'm fairly sure you were working with dark horse from 98 right but but i mean within the chronology of the storytelling of the uh, oh okay yeah Probably that big gap between three and resurrection. Yeah, mo- most most, most of, of Dark Horse yeah. is is between three and four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For many fans out there, it's your work on Aliens Apocalypse, the Destroying Angels, that stands out above most of the other alien stories out there. How did you come to be involved in that series? Again, the editor Phil Amara who I had worked with when he was an editor at Kitchen Sink Press. He had been my editor for a while on uh, on Xenozoic Tales. He had moved out west, was working with Dark Horse, and I, again, just got a call and the offer for a job. Was that a, do you want to pitch us something again, or was that, we want to do something along these lines? I think it was, it was my pitch. And I think it was, again, it was predicated. I was really happy when they said, they indicated that I could use conceptual material from from the first movie, Alien, which hadn't been available to be integrated before then, at least not for me. But it was at that point, and they they allowed me to get back to, as we talked earlier, you know, my my primary love of Alien, the the Lovecraftian elements, the idea that it's a it's a big unknowable universe, and we're just just a small, relatively unimportant part of that. 
So that that's what was really intriguing, and that really got my juices flowing. So un- unlike most typical alien stories, you know, Destroying Angels, it didn't feature competing corporations, but instead you had this organization called, um, well, I'll probably butcher this as well, G. Holgod, and a name that always made me think of Behold God, <laughs> which was more of a science collective than anything else. Was this a deliberate step away from, you know, those alien tropes of evil corporations? First of all, did he get it right? Is it G. Holgod or is it Gehol God? I, I'm not sure. I, I have a feeling that it's probably the guttural Dutch Gehole God, <laughs> which I can't do correctly. But I'll, I'll tell you, this is interesting. You had written the question asking about the, the corporation. I've always called it Gehole God, but I have no idea if that's correct. And I, again, trying to remember what I was thinking 20 some years ago, I thought I had been looking for a name and had found that online. And I went searching for it. I did a Google search for it. Nothing except its usage in destroying angels. So kept going and going and absolutely nothing on the Gehol God. The closest thing I could find to it was, I think it's Geholian or Jeholian, which is, I believe it was Frisian or some some middle Germanic language that means to have something, to, to acquire, to own something, I believe. And I'm wondering now, well, did I see that and extrapolated somehow Gehol God out of that? It's weird. I do not know where I got the name. All I know is it didn't. I didn't come up with that whole cloth. There was some information I got online that led to that happening. But for the life of me, I, I've, it's lost. It's lost to me. Well, even that seems thematic as to what you were doing with the organization. You know, they were collecting science for you right. know dissemination, and, and yeah. And, and as near as I can tell, that was probably that may very well have been why I went with that because I liked that it, it related to acquiring something. But but what about leaning away from like Wayland Utani or Bionational or Grant or any of the other ones and going for this science collective? You know, was there any particular reason in there? I like the idea of of an organization that at least was pretending was after pure knowledge. And this probably goes back to again the films and and entertainment stuff I, I read or saw as a kid and having these science-based organizations that were kind of shadowy and in the background. One of the most important inspirational things as a kid, it was a television series called The Outer Limits in the in the early 60s, which had a, a great episode called The Architects of Fear. And the, uh, the instigating force in, in that particular episode, the self-contained story, was this shadowy group of scientists who were... Uh, well, I won't get into it, but it was it was fascinating to me that that you would have these uh, different people who were supposedly directed by intellect and and wanting the best, but it still gets corrupted in the end if things aren't handled right. And yeah. so that's kind of was the incentive, I guess, for the whole God and Tellurian and and Kaitel. Just that all the best intentions of the world can go or can go awry if if not people's intent isn't good or they feel they know better than someone else. As a really interesting concept, and yeah, the, the whole evil corporation theme in Alien does get repeated a lot. And you do have Waylon Yutani featured in the story, it's just more of a background role. But yeah, this this science collective that was still kind of a shadowy, shadowy group. And there was also like an element of religiosity to them, I guess. Like just in their the structures that they had and their their clothing that they wore, it seemed like it was kind of a religion of science almost. Or so that's kind of how I took it. 
I know you said Outer Limits, but I was curious, were there any other inspirations for the group or was it mainly mainly from the Outer Limits? Well, I'm sure. I'm, I'm trying to think. There were other, uh, you know, classic science fiction works that I'd read as a kid that feature that type of uh, institution. Offhand, I'm not recalling anything in particular other than uh, Fritz Leiber's Gather Darkness, which is a great uh, story about a futuristic autocracy that is challenged by a, uh, an organization of, again, shadowy scientists who masquerade as a religion in order to infiltrate and get their objectives. I'm sure there's others. It's, it's a trope, you know, it's been used many times. But, but I would think that that Outer Limits episode was probably the, the primary inspiration for how I handled them. I'm also tickled by the fact that it was called, uh, what did you say, The Architects of... Fear. Fear. Because the, the episode name I planned for this this particular episode is, is The Architect of the Apocalypse. Oh, okay. <laughs> Not the engineer of the apocalypse. The, no. The architect. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, that tickles me. I'm not sure you're going to be able to go into this too much, mostly because I think you've talked about it a little bit, really, as we've been going along. But when you were working on Destroying Angels, you know, one of the prevalent fan theories about the relationship between the aliens and the space jockey was that the aliens were their creation. You know, they were a tool of the space jockeys. Apocalypse goes a completely different direction with it, you know, making making the jockeys a victim of the alien, which I guess is more in line with alien rather than the fan theory that it spun into. But could you tell us a little bit about, you know, that, that story direction and going that angle? Well, again, that's pure Lovecraftian, a big universe of which we are a uh, just a component. It gets away from the whole religion especially, you know, Judeo-Christian religion, that we are the chosen people, the center of the universe. You know, we are God's chosen. Neat thing about Lovecraft was he threw that all out and said, no, real story is we're no more important than anything else. And there's, there's bigger forces out there than us, which, again, for me, is where both an enormous feeling of awe comes from, as well as a feeling of, you know, potential horror. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that's funny as well, because that's the completely opposite direction that Ridley Scott goes yeah, with the that's prequels. What was, mm-hmm. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I mean, even the, the aspect of the space jockeys in your story being like billions of years old, this long dead civilization, as opposed to the alien prequels, where they are still an active civilization. And we're really just seeing uh, an installation of theirs where there was an outbreak. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I do think it, it definitely is more of a Lovecraftian vibe, having them as this ancient race, ancient long gone race. My other interest in going in that direction was, and this is the predominant theme in, in my Xenozoic stories, is the ecological angle that there's got to be a balance between everything in, in, a, in a system in a natural system for it to work, which may or may not be true because the man who's proposing this, Keitel, is crazy. He's gone over the edge. But his belief that they are a like a universal plague that's going to sweep across and that responds to civilizations to get to a certain point of technological abilities, they become space-bearing races and are a threat to the Again, this theoretical ecological balance throughout planetary systems. And again, I I try to keep it vague whether or not this is true or if it's just the ravings of a madman. I really like the quote from what your protagonist Throop said, where she goes, he may be crazy, but I suspect he's at least half right or something like that. Yeah, you want to give the readers a little bit of fear there, you know, that is just that there, there might be something here. 
I found him very self-aware as well, though, which makes me lean to the not lying, not crazy kind of take on it. But like your your take, your take is really the take as far as a lot of people are concerned. Prometheus, screw it, kind of thing. It was the perfect blending of, of Alien and, and Lovecraft and expanding on what was in Alien. So you'll you'll often see many people comment, you know, when, when Destroying Angels comes up, this is what Prometheus should have been. This is the way it <laughs> should have gone. And uh, there'll be many more behind them going, yep, agree, myself included. So, uh, yeah, I, th- I think you nailed it right. It's very kind. Again, it's not, what's the what's the word? It's, I can't think of the word. Whatever's in the films and is owned by 20th Century Fox Disney is, is Bible. Canon. You talk about canon, aren't you? Exactly. Everything else is just people riffing on it and to be disposed of or used as they choose. I did want to say, though, just you're making me think of things here, too. As far as the Keitel character, you were asking about influences on like a whole god. But Keitel, my use of Keitel is absolutely is is Kurtz from Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, the which I've used any number of times in stories. The brilliant man who acquires so much power, you know, and the idea that absolute power corrupts absolutely, that he, he uh-huh. just does horrible things because he he can. His belief in the the ends justify the means goes out of control. So that that's that was another major element in in my development of that story of my fondness for Heart of Darkness. And that's another tapping into, you know, long running alien influences as well. There, Joseph Comrade. Again, the Nostromo, of course, from the first movie. All the ship names. Is a Conrad. Narcissus a lot of the expanded universe does it as well. Goes down yeah. those routes. And I, and, I, and I also reading the story. I realized I named the uh, the ship that goes after the rescue ship, the Rachel, which is the rest the ship that rescues Ishmael in Moby Dick. That's oh. where that came from. Wouldn't have guessed that one. <laughs> I mean, it, it's hard to argue that the ends justify the means. If if he was correct about the aliens being a galactic extermination species, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what. What would the human race do about it, though? I mean, unless they said, okay, we're going to retreat entirely from faith-faring. Well, I think Kirsch at the end was saying, um, we have to find a way to like join with them. Yeah, coexist. And that's what he was trying to do with the vaccine where the aliens wouldn't wouldn't attack humans. And that was also a really interesting concept to me. Like he considered his research incomplete. So how much further would that have gone? What exactly did he mean by coexist with the alien? So it raises interesting questions. Yeah, I don't know if the human race, I think my remembrance is he wanted to create some sort of a genetic hybrid between humans and aliens. I guess I didn't make that clear in the story. But yeah, would the human race want to do that would be the question. If it meant their survival. They might have, yeah, some who did might have survived, yeah. Interesting. Because I think that kind of plays into the transhumanism elements that the franchise is starting to toy with now. Right. And that was an element, too, if I'm not in Alien 4, right? The idea of... Uh... Yeah, I suppose to some degree with Ripley, isn't it? Yeah. And genetic memory. So here, here's a minutiae question that's going to be a very simple yes or no, I think. There's a particular thing, Destroying Angels, uh, this descending staircase going down to the necropolis. Mm-hmm. And it, it reminds me of a not very well-known, unused concept from Alien. You know, this, this what they call the Red City. It's not very well known about. There's bits of concept art scene, snippets of script. But that reminded me very much of what we knew of of the Red City. Was that intentional on your part or was that just coincidence? 
I don't have any recall of seeing. You're saying this was concept art for a scene that wasn't used. There was some storyboards of of it, yes. Okay, but it's not very it's not very well known. Okay, yeah, I'm not sure. I, that's a good question, and I'm not sure how much how much art direction I gave to Doug Wheatley for something like that. I I, I just believe I said it was a a big you know a ramp going down, but yeah, I'm not sure where he made it. He's someone you might talk to at some point. He brought a lot of the visual, of course, to that. I wrote it, but the visual elements are, you know, pretty much all his. Fair enough. I thought that would be a very, uh, a very simple question. No, I'm very, I'm very intrigued by this, uh, these storyboards you're talking about. I'll dig them out and send okay, them to you. I'm fairly sure I've got them on my, uh, my library, as I like to call it. From the original film, right, Aaron? Yeah. So it, it was Alien. It was I'm trying to think of the timeline Which here. Means- I very well may have seen it because I was obsessed when that film came out with collecting whatever I could find, you know, in pre-online days, of course. But there were a number of, of books and articles published about the concept work behind Alien, because especially Giger's stuff, but Ron Cobb's work and Mobius's input. So I'd be very interested. I may have seen it, but I don't remember it. I don't think it was in any of the making of books because, uh, it's like I said, it's, it's quite a rare random piece of of the development and while adam asks the questions i'm going to try and find it because I, I can't remember the artist's name as well i'm surprised it wouldn't wouldn't be in rinsler's book it's mentioned in rinsler's book Destroying Angels is notable for being one of only a handful of appearances of an alien-slash-space-jockey hybrid. Design-wise, it's actually very subdued, with only the large size and small nub to indicate the trunk. Uh, We're curious Mm -hmm. as to the creative decisions that took you down that route. Did you have input, I guess, in the style of that, or was that just the, the artist's take? That was all the artist. I don't think I gave him any directions other than it had to be huge. It had to be in keeping with the size of the, the the jockey, the species, the giant from which it hatched. But other than that, that was all Doug Wheatley's design. And yeah, I just got to say, Aaron, I think both of us love the artwork in Apocalypse. Like Wheatley's Wheatley's artwork for that was was really solid. Doug was, yeah, he did a, a fantastic job. Again, I, I can't imagine the amount of hours he put into realizing the detail and the, and the lighting effects he put into that. But yeah, it's a magnificent achievement. And the coloring was perfect for it too, I thought. Just, just a gorgeous, very unique looking book. And he would actually come back and do that um, AVP comic, the more recent one that I mentioned earlier, uh, Thicker Than Blood, which I think was his, the only comic where he did the interiors other than Apocalypse was Thicker Than Blood, because he did a few other covers. Right. Life and Death Hunters. Mm -hmm. I'll I'll look for that then, because I love his work. I haven't been in a comic shop in a long time, so I haven't kept up with it. Was was that series, The Thicker Than Blood, was that within the last few years? or It was Dark Horse's last Alien vs. Predator title. Okay. Before it switched over to Marvel. Very good I think comic. It's one of our favorite AVP comics, Aaron. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll look for that. I've sent you that storyboard I found. It's Elliot Scott is the artist's name. Okay. Not quite a spiral thing, but it's the ancient city okay. kind of um, okay. element to it, yeah. And, and this would have been... A scene on the on the plant on the moon when they yes. were somehow under the spaceship or something or uh, yeah it was one of the explorations for where they'd find the aliens and stuff like that the script that okay. particular draft isn't out there but this artwork is 
and the snippets of it in Rinsler's book, like um, Adam was talking about. Cool. Something to look forward to. When we revisited the comic for our recent review episode, uh, it was pointed out that the method of travel that the ship employs was very similar to the then recent film Event Horizon. Was that an intentional inspiration? You know what? Honestly, I've never seen Horizon. I, I, need, I want to and I need to, but I understand though. I know what, I know what the concept is. It was more the, the, the idea of particle drive and bending space comes more from Dune, actually. Oh, yeah. The spacing guild. Yeah. Those big ships. Right. So I was using terms like bending space that come straight from the novel Dune. And I, and I believe it was in the Lynch film, too. So that's where that came from. And, and that is actually a contrivance that I put in there that I'm kind of, ugh, it, it's so much not a part of the rest of the alien universe. I needed something, I felt I needed something to get them there in a timely fashion, rather than the years that would take them to get there under the conventional methods that would have interfered with other stories and timelines. I needed something to get them there quickly because this is early on. This is, you know, relatively soon after the first movie in in chronological terms within the concept. It's one of very few sat between. Right. No one objected to it. And I was kind of surprised if I remember because it was outside. But again, it's it's a contrivance that I wish there had been another way around. But I, I couldn't figure out a way to make the story work without having that in there. Getting them there quickly, instantaneously. Mo- moving on from Destroying Angels, but keeping within that sort of setting that you were playing with, you would write a short called Once in a Lifetime. Another one of those things where I was kind of like, oh, is this going to be a serious thing? Because there was something in there called the Mandela Directive that you drop, but then never gets never gets done anywhere else. So that was one of those, is this Mark doing something intentional for a sequel here? But no, this question's more about the planet, the name of the planet which is Tegu Myra's a planet that had previously been the setting in another alien story called Wraith, a one shot by Jay Stevens from the year before. Was that intentional or was that just a, a random pluck? Here, here's the story behind that. I didn't even remember I was involved with that story till you brought it up. <laughs> that was a story. The story itself, the plot, was brought to me by Phil Amara my co-author. I helped with some dialogue. I didn't have much to do with the concept or the the action or the references are all from Phil. I don't even remember. Rick Leonardi did nice art on it. I remember that, but I don't remember anything about the story in particular. So no no memory of the Mandela directive either then? No. and, And I was, again, I know I have copy of it someplace but i can't find it buried under a ton of other material someplace a bit of a mini prequel setup to um apocalypse or it's a sequel i thought it was a prequel interesting i i gotta go back and look at it but again it was phil was my editor on on destroying angels so you know he would have been very involved with developing that story I can't remember the circumstances, but he obviously he took something from that and developed it into this this follow-up story. But he brought me on board to help with some elements and to help with the dialogue, but but that was about it. I didn't have a lot of involvement with it. Are we sure it's not a prequel? Because he still has the owl in that one. The owl came back. Oh, I thought she had gone off to to do something else, that she didn't go back to that group. Is the owl? Wow, the owl appears in that story. Yeah. Wow, I have, you'd think I'd remember that. It's it's definitely a sequel because they're talking about using I forget the character's name the new True. one no the new one they're talking about using her like we used Troop oh 
I thought it was like Throuple the Useful to us as well. Like they hadn't had that meeting yet. Wow. Um, interesting, but have to look back into that. While the majority of your work with Alien and Predator is well-loved, there is one series on your resume that isn't held in such high esteem. Can you tell us about your experience writing Alien vs. Predator vs. Terminator, and were you aware of the reaction to the series? No, I wasn't aware of any reaction to it, no. Um, but yeah, that's a one that's, uh, you know, sometimes you take on jobs because you need the money. And it's a no, I, it's a no win to, to get three characters, all of which are beloved by different constituencies, and to try to give them equal time and equal importance in the story, is it's difficult. And yeah, that's overall, there's, there's elements in that story that I am proud of and I liked, but overall it was, how do I fit all these puzzle parts together and make this work? And I, and I don't believe the artist on this series, I don't know how how engaged he was by the material. It's a, yeah, it, it didn't work. The whole thing didn't work very well. I could see it being difficult when you're moving beyond just Alien and Predators and adding another versus in there, how it could easily kind of become a jumble. There were some other comics that ended up being that way as well. There was one called Mine Hunter that was Alien, Predator, and then two Top Cow properties, Witchblade and Darkness. And it was just crazy, <laughs> just all over the place. Couldn't yeah. really follow the story on that one. So the, the artist of this particular story was also the artist of two of the Xenogenesis events that are credited for killing off the first Golden Age of Alien and Predator comics. Oh, okay. And also the Witchblade <laughs> series that Adam just... Well, there were two Witchblade series, the so first I wonder one. if he did the first Mind, one. Okay. Mindhunter, yeah. Yeah. So maybe he was sick of people giving him crap <laughs> for, for those series. <laughs> It was a, it was a an impossible assignment. Again, you're you're trying to cram so many different elements into a limited amount of pages. You know, I forget if there was if it was a three or four issue. Let's say it was four issues, twenty pages in each issue, so eighty pages to try to make this all work. It's just too much. Out of interest, while you talking about that, it was four issues, by the way. Okay. Why was Dark Horse doing four issues? The majority of their series is were yes four issues. Why why four? Do you know? I I don't know, but I'm willing to bet it has to do with economics. Probably they saw diminishing returns after a certain number of issues of any series. It's like why not just number just do aliens and just consecutively number it and just okay. Maybe there's a four-issue story and it ends at the end of the fourth issue. But then in issue five, we just start a new story that goes for however many issues. But I believe comic companies have come to realize that people buy lower number issues and they tend to tail off when it gets to higher. So they always want to go back to a number one, which brings in more more buyers, more people buying because it's a number one. We saw that with Marvel. Yeah. Was it three printings, Adam, at least? Of the first one? Yeah. Well, because it was a big yeah. new property for Marvel. I mean, I, I love Dark Horse, but Marvel has a much bigger market share. So I did hear it was a big launch for them, even though, I mean, we, we have issues with the comic. We're kind of hoping they find their footing with, with that. Are they tending to follow more Alien or Aliens? Or what's their what's the basis of their universe that they're developing there? It's called Alien, unlike most of Dark Horses, which were Aliens. Mm-hmm. So that, that, that's the first tonal sort of difference. They did have an Aliens one-shot, though. They did, yeah. But it seems to straddle that line between the action horror not quite going okay. fully either either way. 
they've they've only got the one ongoing series at the minute, but they have been splitting it into arcs. Was it six issues? I think it was six, yeah. six or seven. I think it was six. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, the the feeling in the comic world just seems to be that the more you can repeat a number one, an issue number one, that's why you see so many miniseries, uh, just an ongoing series that gets into higher numbers. Right. You actually have the distinction of being one of only two writers to have written for Ripley 8 in the Expanded Universe. For Alien vs. Predator vs. Terminator, though, Ripley 8 seems to have taken a step backwards from the more hopeful ending that Resurrection had. Could you walk us through your sort of mentality of the creative decision that went into doing that to Ripley? You know, taking away that hope. Yeah, that's that seems unlike me because I... <laughs> I like to have more hopeful characters, but I, I agree. I know she's in a dark place in the beginning. I, I'm trying to remember again what I was given. Beyond that, I had to use the three different properties. But I think I was also asked to use Ripley post Alien 4. Okay. And to use, oh, what's her name? The synth. Call. And, and so I had to find a way of making them work. And I do remember that I had been very disappointed, very unhappy with the way I felt that the Ripley character should be handled in the uh, the third and fourth movies. I, I, I thought, you know, they, they put the poor woman who in the first movie is the level, you know, she deserves better, I thought. So I wanted to put her in a place where it kind of resolved her story and allowed her to be the, you know, she joins the Predators in the she takes command of herself. She takes control of her life in that she's put in a position where she gets the chance to do that. And it's it's a it's an end game. It's a suicide mission. But I like the idea that we were going back. I was reiterating the end of the first movie in the end of that series. That it was like she only she's the one in charge now. She's doing things on her terms. So I did I did like now I'm thinking about it. I did like a lot about what because, again, I was so unhappy with what the movies had done. And, again, my mind, you know, it's not my property, but in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I would have done things differently. So I got a chance to do that in this story. Didn't quite work out, but that was that was my thinking. Well, see, I mean, it's an interesting way of taking it because, you know, Alien 3 is about inevitability, I suppose, you know she couldn't escape and then you mm-hmm. have resurrection where she's forcefully brought back to life so even though yeah she's tortured even though it ended on a positive well a hopeful note it's like your ripley yeah. was suffering from those you know a trauma i guess from those two takes on her i guess i i guess i didn't get the uh quite the same feeling you got from the end of four i i thought it was a resurrection i i thought it was pretty i didn't think it looked promising for her <laughs> given given what she'd been through I always took the end of four as, I mean, a lot of the early parts of the film is is identity crisis. You know, is she alien? Is she human? Straddling that mm-hmm. kind of thing. And the end of the film, you know, feels more like she's found her place. She's decided her place. And then the music, you know, towards the end, as well as the descending and she's fin- finally come home was where I always took that yeah. that, that hopefulness from. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I would have to see that again to figure out where my head was at at the end of that. And and why I, I, I took the direction I did in that Alien Predator Terminator series, I'm not sure. But I also liked her as a character, especially in regards to how she was handled in the first two movies. And and maybe that's simplistic, having her as just more of a, a take charge. But I like the fact that she here she is just a uh, 
what is her rank? She's in, in the first film. She's the uh, uh, she's a warrant, warrant officer. Warrant officer, right. Yet she is the one that she handles things the best. It's just whatever it takes to, to rise to the crisis and, and overcome it. She's a survivor. And, and I really didn't like that they, they kind of reversed that in the third and fourth films. They made her a victim. And again, that's just my character. But yeah, everyone's got their own take. It's not a take I hear very often, but you know, when you, when you say it like that, yeah. Yeah, that is kind of the case, yeah. It, it is. Having her become the victor is more of a horror movie thing, right? It does give you more chance to get into that aspect of things rather than, you know, someone who's, who's conquering the, the negative, whatever it is, the, the antagonist. Yeah, I just like that character so much. I wanted better for her. Did you enjoy writing her then? Very much. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with her. And and no sort of was it was it like the other comics, you know, not much involvement from Fox in terms of what you were doing with her? Not that I can remember. I don't think so. Because there's any number of things in there you would think they would say, Whoa, we don't want that, you know. Mm. But nothing, nothing that I can recall. If it was anything, it was minor. So that's interesting because when when you when you go to the predator side of what Dark Horse was doing, Fox wouldn't let them use Dutch. They wouldn't let them use Arnie's character in case something came along with the films. And then, like mm-hmm. you were saying earlier, that you were then allowed to play with the space jockey and destroying angels, which was a change. And that kind of makes me think if it was more, if it was one of those situations as well, where they were keeping it in reserve in case the films came along. Right. And then when you have Ripley, it's like, nope, go ahead. You know, we're not, we're not revisiting her. So yeah, that's I find that interesting. Those kind of decisions also could be based on the the contractual agreements they have with the actors playing the roles. Arnold Schwarzenegger was a big name uh, when he made Predator, and he could have had contractually that they couldn't use his likeness in another media without his permission or without some compensation. Whereas Sigourney Weaver didn't have that kind of pull and power when she did Alien. And it could have been a whole different agreement. So it could be, yeah, you can use her likeness or her uh, the character and as much likeness as you want to use of her without it being any kind of a negative situation for the studio. I mean, that makes sense, given his character finally did make a reappearance in a recent video game. And they they talked about how they approached Arnold and they asked him about having his character in the game and what they wanted to do with his character. And and he liked it and approved it. Whereas the last Predator movie, the fourth Predator movie, also approached Arnold and wanted a cameo for his character, which he wasn't fond of the script. And so he didn't make an appearance in that one. The whole likeness thing was, again, a, a problem that Mark faced in the first three series as well. You know, and, and that affected the story that was being told there. I have a friend who was an artist on the, uh, I believe it was Marvel, was doing the Star Trek Next Generation series. This was probably back in the 90s. But it was hellish because all the major players in there had the rights to approve their likeness in the comic. And so it was a mess getting everyone on board and agreeing, oh, yeah, I'll accept that that's, that's not going to hurt my image. There was supposed to be uh, Alien versus uh, Star Trek The Next Generation comic. Oh, yes. That was coming in 2017. And the rumor was Scott himself was responsible for getting it canned. That's the rumor. But. Wow. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, how many uh, how many people outside the main cast do you want to kill off? Uh, you can't kill off any of the main cast, so that kind of have all the rich takes all the... Star Trek has many ways around that, though. You know, many parallel universes and alternate timelines. It was fine. <laughs>
You also wrote Superman and Batman versus Aliens and Predator. It was a bit of an event in that it was the last of the crossovers with Batman or Superman. And it also came during a time when Dark Horse had actually stopped publishing standalone series. Could you tell us a little about the development of that story and how you came to be involved? I think I was approached by the editor at DC, I think, about doing that. That when you were working on Superman? No, I think I'd finished Superman by that time. Maybe not. Maybe I still was on Superman. But I'm trying to remember. But I believe the purview came under DC, the, the actual editorial control of that. I think DC and Dark Horse, like one series they did together would be controlled by DC. One would be controlled by Dark Horse. You know, they alternated, I believe. But I believe the editorial control was through DC. And again, it was just one of those deals. I'd been, I had been writing Superman for enough years, and uh, they needed someone who was familiar with Aliens, too, and, and, and Predator. So I was asked, was asked on board. And uh, good Lord, I'm blanking out on the, um, the artist's name, but just beautiful artwork. Ariel uh, Yes. Mm-hmm. Olivetti, yeah. Uh, and I believe he's South American. I believe Brazil or Argentina. I'm, I hope I'm right. But yeah, just gorgeous work. He came back for the AVP Leg of the Fire and Stone event. Okay. A very realistic kind of style to his artwork that I really like. I really, I really like Batman and Superman versus Alien. Oh my god, they get so mouthy these crossovers. Yeah, I, I really like that run actually. I'm not a big fan of crossovers outside of Alien versus Predator, but that run I really like, and and I think his art as well plays a really big part in that because it's very unique in terms of I think his art has a lot to do with it because, again, it's one of those mashups that it's impossible to satisfy all the constituents because there's just too much. There's just too many to try to cram in there. But his artwork was stellar enough, was just gorgeous enough, I think, to cover up the flaws in my story make it flow much nicer, much smoother. So you you, you do two back-to-back crossovers. Is it... Do, do you find those the most challenging of what you've done from, from the series? They're the most challenging in trying to get all the, the parts of the puzzle to fit together and work. But to be honest, they're, they're gimmick stories. And I don't sweat out getting things right as much as I would in like a Destroying Angels, which means more to me. Uh So in a way, that's more challenging because I want to get it right. I want to make that sing as well as possible. That's not to say that I blow off something like Superman, Batman, Alien, Predator, but it is what it is. There's just not a chance to get into, to really sink your teeth into either character development or, or thematic underlying elements that you do in a story that is more focused on a much narrower yeah. a much narrower scope. I do think you hit it with a uh, with the the big one though because you had I think it was about 100 pages was that story and okay I think you hit it really well because there's a lot of Superman being Superman. Throughout that book he feels flawlessly Superman and Batman feels flawlessly Batman. The only one the only ones who ever feel like they suffer in these stories is the aliens actually, which I think is a question for Adam shortly. Before I let him get there though, actually. Something I noticed in Batman and Superman is a very cheeky reference to the aliens homeworld being um someplace in the neighborhood of Arcturus. Now for alien fans Octurus is, is very well known for the Octurian Poontang line from Aliens. Was that intentional? Was was that a callback to um, Aliens? I did not even recall that line. If I if I ever even really picked it up, is that something that Bill, what's the name? Uh, not Bill Pullman, Bill... Uh, Bill Paxton, you're thinking. Paxton, did, he, did yeah. he say that? Was that something he said? 
I'm fairly sure it was Rico Ross. Okay. No, it was no, it was both of them. It was both of them. There's an exchange. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't recall that. I just liked the sound of Arcturus, and Arcturus was, you know, in mythology, Arcturus or Eris, I think the name was, was a hunter. So the predators, and yeah, okay, I get yeah, it. Yeah. This question spins off of one submitted by one of our community members, Sill, who was asking specifically about Alien versus Predator versus Terminator. But I wanted to broaden it to talk about crossovers overall. He feels like aliens tend to take a sideline in crossovers with other franchises. From your perspective as a writer and your time writing two crossovers, do you think that was the case? And why do you think that happened? Well, it's unfortunate, but it probably is the case because the aliens really don't have any character development. The aliens are aliens. They're ants. They do what they do. Whereas even the predator has a little bit of personality and it's easier to write and do more things with them. But the predators, you just have pretty much their biological process and mayhem. And you just, again, I guess you could write a story, which is just you know, 20 pages or whatever of aliens overrunning and eating people and and procreating, but there's no story there. Whereas if you get involved, and and that was a problem with the Terminators too. There's nothing to the Terminators. They're just destroying machines until you get into, you know, the second Terminator movie and, and Schwarzenegger being turned. But essentially, the character that I had to work with, they're just machines. So you tend to invest more time in the characters that you can, they have some personality, you can do something with them. You can give them some sort of problems, some sort of situation they have to overcome. There's not much you can do with the alien as it is now. It's just a killing. It's just an animal that kills and reproduces. Having said that, Again, I know a fraction of all the material that's been read about aliens, so someone else may have solved and gone beyond that. I don't know. kind of makes me wonder if, from a writing perspective, they become more useful as tools or stepping stones. You know, like like the Mm -hmm. way you interpreted the relationship in Destroying Angels, the way in Terminator it becomes a tool to create something with character as such. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That's their usefulness, yes. Keeping on that perspective as a writer, you know, something I'm curious about is series tropes, you know, established properties like Alien and Predator and Terminator and Batman and, and, you know, everything. They have reoccurring tropes. So when you're working on a licensed property, you know, like this as a writer, is your instinct to lean into that or is it to try and lean away from it? That's a, that's a really good question. For me, it's a balancing act. There are tropes you've got to recognize and honor, but you don't want to end on them. You don't want to overutilize them. You don't want to repeat things verbatim. You know, you want to try to find a twist on it. So yeah, it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of both. And you also want to ideally add something, add a, add a, add a possible new trope in there too something that might become a trope. But yeah, you you've got to you've got to hit certain storytelling mechanisms, elements that resound with the, the readers or the the viewer. Yeah, you you, you got to you have to have both. Does it make it difficult, do you think, that juggle? Not as difficult as digging ditches for a living, you know. It's <laughs> it's, it's it's a good challenge. It's a good challenge. It's a challenge. And sometimes, you know, you get creator's block and it's like, oh, why won't the answer come to me? Why can't I make this scene interesting? But most of the time it's, you know, you figure it out and you move on. Most of what we've talked about today has been your writing work, but you're also an artist and did the covers for many of your series. Is there a particular cover that stands out as your favorite alien or predator work that you've done? Oh, boy. Yikes. 
Well, I was just looking at the, uh, because I was refreshing my memory. I, re I really like the way this cover turned out. I don't know if your edition over there in Great Britain used this artwork. This was the cover for the collection of Helen Hotwater. So I have a, it's a hardback recollection thing that they were doing, mm -hmm. which I think oh, yeah, is the that cover was, that was UK only, I think. Which I think was, is that from the actual comic or is that one of your covers? I can't remember actually, because it looks... Yeah, that was the cover to the first Dark Horse issue, uh, okay. the first comic issue in, in the States. Yeah, I like that one too. Personally, I've always really loved your cover of the paperback of Apocalypse. I just think this is such a cool pose for the alien. And you just do the alien really well. Like you give it a sense of movement, even in a static panel. Like it's one of the main problems we have with the new Marvel comics, honestly, is the, the artist can't really can't really do aliens. But it's clear from from your cover that you can. And it is a really impressive Thank piece. Thank you. I like to instill that sense of movement. Yeah. That that was a cover I like because I like the way the owl turned out in that one too, in the uh the cover that you put up. And that's my that's my wife posing on the ground there, being crushed uh -huh. by the alien. <laughs> it is a very well known cover. And yeah, it, it is interesting with the owl attacking the alien there. Though no longer being published by Dark Horse, both Alien and Predator are under Marvel. Would you have any interest in returning to write on a new series? Well, I don't know. At my age, probably not. It depends. It might. If it was the right artist and the situation, I would never say never, but it's unlikely. Okay, well, that, that's actually all of our questions, Adam and I's, but we do have a handful from our community members. We always like to give those guys a chance to ask any questions that we might have missed or they have specific ones that they want to ask, ask you about. Sure. So for this first one, Morton Jonesy would like to know if uh, Hannah Dundee from uh, Xenozoic Tales was an inspiration for through from Apocalypse. Yeah, probably, because as we talked earlier, I like female heroines, but I'll also say that that also goes back to uh, how uh, Sigurdsson sees character with the Ripley character. So, you know, there's lots of inspirations that go into Hannah. And yeah, yeah, that type of character absolutely influences the way I do other. I did Troop and other characters. And Blue Marsalis 79 has some questions about Destroying Angel's Owl, asking, why was the owl not an android because of Blade Runner? And why have the owl at all? Oh, there's an owl in Blade Runner that's a replicant. Right. Yeah. Okay. When I saw that question, you had sent me that question, Aaron, and I couldn't quite understand what... No, it's a real owl. I mean, why why have it as a synth? If My, my thinking was that, that the owl... The usefulness of the owls, it's senses. It's it's able to sense things that humans can't see. You know, it's it, it's opposed to having the Geiger meter device to try to find the alien, the clicking thing. You have an animal. For me, I mean, I love these owls. I had just read about these great gray owls that literally they're huge. They have like six foot wingspans and they, they will come down on four feet of snow and stun prey that's on the ground four feet under. It just they can sense and they're effective that way. They're effective hunters. So I, I just wanted to get that in the story somehow. And I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I didn't see any need I, to make it a synth. It's uh, to make it an android. I just wanted it to be a real owl. So that, that was kind of like the scuba diving element of Helen Hotwater. Then it was, it was an interest at the time that you wanted to work in. Right. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff that goes into my stories just happened to be I saw the right article that on some 
something that inspired me, that got me excited. And it's like, well, i got to find a way to use this. <laughs> I, I can understand that. AVP Ryu has asked a question about the second Terminator hybrid in Aliens versus Predator versus the Terminator. Uh, Ryu notes he disappears after the big attack on the base and was wondering if he was killed outside of the panel or was he for a bait sequel? Oh my God, I don't have any idea. <laughs> I wonder if I missed I missed that. What did I do with the uh, yikes? What did I do with the Terminator? Yikes. I'm sorry. I don't know the answer to that. I would assume. No I would like to think that I was aware enough of the situation that he just got blowed up and that was the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of chaos was going on. I, I can't claim that there was any uh, ulterior motive in mind to uh, have a second series with him. Okay. No. Phil Neris is also asking about Alien versus Predator versus Terminator. And I think, do, do you like the way it keeps rolling, Adam? Is that, is that the, <laughs> right. the chuckle? And I think you you probably alluded to this earlier, really. But he, he was curious as to why the conflict was in the future and it, and it wasn't set during the Skynet War. I believe, again, I believe it was, I had to integrate with the the world of post-alien resurrection. And I had to make these timelines all... Now, it wasn't hard dealing with predators. That That's, you know, the, the timeline isn't all that consequential. They're just here all the time, more or less. But to make the timeline of alien, the alien universe that they wanted used, work with Terminator, that had to have been the incentive. I'm, I'm guessing now, because it's been that long, but that must have been the reason. Yeah, I thought it was with you also talking about it being, you know, an editorial for hire kind of piece. Right, right. No, that that was a that was a decision that was made above my pay grade. I'm sure. Oh, that is everything. Before we let you get in that EVV and jet off, though, is there anything you'd like to say? You know, any anecdote or any thought that we haven't given you the opportunity to talk about with any of our questions? No, I think that covers it. I'm surprised, but very happy that people enjoyed, especially the Destroying Angels, which I think is the one thing I did in all these series that really worked well. I'm very happy that people still enjoy that. So did you did you not know how loved that was? No idea. I, I, I don't follow a lot of social media or uh, online conversations and stuff, mostly because you don't want that stuff to get in your head when you're creating stuff. You know what I mean? You don't want to be influenced either by negative comments or by praise to, you know, well, I got to duplicate that again, you know, not a good idea. So I stay away from online. So now I, I had no idea. It's nice to hear. It's it's really nice to hear. Gotcha. We, we really didn't talk about it much, but your AVP short story, um, Chain to Life and Death. I think I first read that there was a, a reprint of Annual that was with the AVP movie DVD that came with that. And, and your story was in that. And I thought it was a really cool short story, just entirely from the Predator's perspective and his view on the alien and his final battle with one. So I did really like that short quite a bit. Thanks. The, the artist on that, Tom Biondolillo, I kind of lost track of him, but he had been a student at a school, at an art school that I had done some teaching at. And uh, I think he's an art instructor now. But anyway, yeah, he did a great job on that. And I, I really liked it. That's an example of how you can make uh, the Predator bring a little bit of personality and a little a little bit of inner inner conflict into that character, which you totally, you totally can't with the aliens. <laughs> Because he was recognizing himself in the alien, wasn't he, in that one, if I remember rightly? If I remember right, and I haven't read it in a long time, but he was comparing himself, comparing the uh, yeah. you know, what he admired about the alien. 
that was another good one where you were doing a different spin on the typical as well. Yeah, I really enjoyed Chain to Life and Death. And I'm surprised I, I didn't put any questions in there actually about that one. Do you want to signpost people to your Facebook page or is there any website or anything like that that you would like people to check out? Yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a nice, concise name for my Facebook page. It's just Mark Schultz's Xenozoic Tales and Other Stories on Facebook. So that is my sole social media presence. And I I do post new art there and uh, information about appearances I'm going to be doing and stuff of that nature. And I'll make sure to include a link to that in the post that goes up along with uh, this podcast. And if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, rather than listening, I'll include a link in the description in the video below. And that was our interview with writer Mark Schultz, writer and artist Mark Schultz. Hope you all enjoyed that and hope you're enjoying your alien day. If you'd like to check out our website, it's avpgalaxy.net, where hopefully today we will be updating you on a bunch of news, we hope. We're also on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you are sure to find us. And if you are watching this on YouTube, do please make sure you're liking and commenting and subscribing. It all helps the algorithms with making us more accessible to other fans that haven't discovered us yet. And also, please, you know, do share this podcast, do share this video with an alien and predator friend. Again, all helps us and it's very much appreciated. Adam, before we go, though, quick bet. I am waging on a pair of shoes, a a new pair of bug stompers today. How about you? That's not even something we have to guess on. They've already announced that, haven't they? I don't think so. Yeah, I thought there's a new one coming this year, the Bug Stompers. I don't remember. I'll have to have a look, actually, then. Yeah, hopefully hopefully some good stuff. I'm not expecting much, but we'll see. But we're doing it. We've got to do like Alien Day Bingo or something. I don't know. Oh, yes. Okay, I don't know if we'll have time to do that. But yes, for future, that needs to be done. But uh, before we do just sign off, I'd just like to thank Mark again. He was very gracious enough to come on here and spend some time with us. And from what I understand, he actually really enjoyed this one. So thank you again, Mark. Be sure to check him out on Facebook. The link is in the video description and in the podcast post. So uh, go give him some love. Thank you, everybody, for listening or watching. This has been Corporal Hicks. And Ridgetop. Signing off. <laughs>